Hi, I'm George Collias. Welcome to the GI Collias Podcast, where we will be talking about art, literature, philosophy, and all things classical Greek. This is our first episode, and today we will be discussing Aristophanes' play, The Knights. So today we will be discussing the comedy The Knights, the Hippies, by the ancient Athenian playwright Aristophanes. The Knights is an example of what we call old comedy, a term we use for the comedy of Athens and Attica in the 5th century BCE. Now, don't get confused by the geography. Athens is the city and Attica the region, but the two terms are often used interchangeably. Now, as far as old comedy is concerned, we know the names of many major artists and the titles of the plays, and in some cases, we even have fragments of texts. However, we only have complete plays by Aristophanes. None of the works of his competitors have survived in full. You see, the survival of texts from antiquity was very much a matter of luck and a reflection of the taste of Hellenistic and Byzantine scribes who had to go through the painstaking process of copying ancient texts manually. Aristophanes himself tells us that this is the first play for which he acted as a producer, as a teacher of the chorus, as is the technical term. In his previous attempts, he had simply written the script, but had left the direction and the production to a more experienced colleague. The Knights were first produced in the Linear Festival in honor of Dionysus in 424 BCE. Now, the year 424 is important because, as we shall see, the text is full of topical contemporary references, and it is very difficult to make sense of the play without some understanding of the current situation, especially in politics, in the year when it was written. Drama, both tragedy and comedy, was taken very seriously in 5th century Athens. The actors, who are usually three or four in an Aristophanes comedy, were paid for by the state. Paying for the training of the chorus, which was made up of 24 amateurs in a comedy, and for the sets, costumes, masks, and sundry expenses and props, was assigned to a rich individual as one of the annual liturgies. Ancient Athens had no income tax. Affluent Athenians were expected to contribute to state finances either by equipping a trireme, a warship, or by paying part of the costs for a religious festival. The chorus was an integral part in both tragedies and comedies. Historians of theatre believe that it may have been the most ancient element in the performance. And it is very common for plays to be named after the chorus, as with the knights, where the chorus is made up of young Athenian knights, hippies, cavalrymen. Although not the case here, old comedy writers frequently use choruses from the animal kingdom. Of Aristophanes' extant plays alone, for example, we have the frogs, the wasps and the birds. And again, this may have something to do with the ancient origins of the genre in religious or rituals. And one last thing to remember here is that both the chorus and the actors would be wearing masks. This was standard in both tragedies and comedies. Aristophanes says at one point in his play that the mask maker refused to make the mask 
for the Paphlagon slave, one of the central characters, resembled the real person satirized too closely as he was afraid of any potential repercussions. Let's turn now to the dramatic festival, the Linea, which was the winter dramatic festival in Athens, held in January, February. It included tragedies as well as comedies. Normally, five comedians would be competing for the first prize, but as the nights were staged during the Peloponnesian War, this number may have been reduced from five down to three. The other major dramatic festival, the city Dionysia, was held in spring. The fact that old comedy was presented during a religious festival is key. As we shall see, the genre, for all its obscene content, its dirty humour and the rather wacky and surreal plot lines, had a strong connection with the cult of Dionysus and its origin lie in very ancient rites. We should also note the fact that on top of the religious element there was also a competitive element in the festival. Greece was a very competitive culture. Agon, struggle, context was an integral part of every activity. It was not enough just to go and see the plays and have a good time. There also had to be a contest about who would come first. Now, in the festival, the writers, producers and sponsors would have been selected and asked to submit the proposals for that year's festival months in advance. There would be multiple performances every day. In the city Dionysia, as we know, a standard day included three tragedies, a trilogy and a satyr play by one tragedian followed by the performance of a comedy. So, five shows in total per day. The programme in the linear might have been slightly different as fewer tragedies were in competition. There was no artificial lighting, of course. All performances would take place during daytime. And the venue was the Theatre of Dionysus under the Acropolis in Athens. Now, if you have visited or planning to visit the Theatre of Dionysus, bear in mind that the ruins you see today are many centuries later than Aristophanes. In the 5th century, the theatre certainly did not have stone seats, for example. Spectators would sit on the natural slope of the cliff, or possibly on wooden benches. The capacity of the theatre could easily be in excess of 10,000 spectators, which means that a large segment of the adult male population of Athens would be in attendance. Slaves and children would probably also watch. And, although this is a contentious topic among scholars, we think that there would be at least some women present in the performances as well. As the linear was held in the winter, before the sailing season started, the audience was predominantly local, Athenians. So perhaps, in this case, comedy writers could take greater liberties without having to worry about being accused of defaming Athens in the presence of overseas visitors. The judges were selected from the ten tribes, which were the big administrative units of the Athenian democracy. And although the top prizes were awarded on their votes alone, we have no indication that they had any theatrical expertise. There was no ancient Athens equivalent of the Motion Picture Academy in Hollywood or the Cannes Film Festival jury. Undoubtedly, audience reaction during this plays, the, the laughter, the clapping, the jeers, would have played a crucial role in the judges' selection. And we know that the night won top prize at the Linear Festival where it was presented.
Now let's talk about the plot of the play. One of the top scholars on Aristophanes has made the very acute observation that although the play is clearly an allegory, where an Athenian household is made to represent the city of Athens, the two levels, the domestic and the political, are not kept strictly apart. The story keeps switching from the one to the other. So this is something that we should bear in mind when discussing the plotline. The play starts with two slaves complaining because their master, old Demos Pecnitis, has hired a new Paphlagonian slave, who has the old man completely under his control and has made life in the household a complete hell for all other members of staff. The connection with contemporary Athens can be made immediately. Demos means people and Pycnitis refers to the Pnyx, the hill opposite the Acropolis where the assembly of all male Athenian citizens met to deliberate and vote on issues of the day. Paphlagonian is used to indicate both that the slave is a foreigner there was a stock accusation against political opponents in Athens. One person would say to the other, come on, you're not even Athenian, sir, you're a foreigner. And also that he bubbles senselessly, sounding like the waves of the sea, the pluff, puff, pluff. The Paphlagonian slave very clearly is Cleon, the most successful politician of his day and a personal enemy of Aristophanes. He represents the new generation of demagogues, Demagogue is a word meaning leader of the people and is used to refer to the new generation of politicians like Cleon. The word had obvious negative connotations from the very beginning. The two complaining slaves now have been identified as Nicias and Demosthenes, two respectable old-fashioned statesmen who are seeing their influence among the people and mind by the new generation of demagogue charmers. The two slaves master enough courage to steal a set of oracles from the sleeping Paphlagonian slave. These oracles reveal to them that the Paphlagonian is bound to lose his position of influence with Demos, the people, when a sausage seller appears on the political scene. And, lo and behold, a sausage seller does indeed happen to be passing by at that very moment. Anisias and Demosthenes convince him to take up the challenge, despite his reservations. They assure him that a thousand knights will assist him on his mission. The Paphlagonian now appears for the first time. The sausage seller loses his nerve, but the chorus of knight makes his entry and gives the Paphlagonian a sound beating. The knights, the hippies, were a distinct social class in ancient Athens, the second most prosperous segment of the population. It was made up of those families who could afford the upkeep of a horse and thus fought in the cavalry, the horse regiment of the Athenian army. A number of around 1,000 knights accords well with historical records of the size of the beginning of the Peloponnesian War. There follows the first verbal contest between the Paphlagonian and the sausage seller. It is a contest full of profanity, sexual and scatological humour. The sausage seller aided and cheered on by the chorus and the other slaves, gets the better of the Paphlagonian by proving that he has all the same abominable qualities, shamelessness, no moral scruples, a lowly social and educational background, expertise and underhanded tactics, but to an even greater degree. The Paphlagonian exits to take his case to the council and the sausage seller follows him there. 
The council was the equivalent of the government in Athens, a body responsible for preferring the bills and resolutions to be discussed in the assembly and charged with the day-to-day -day running of the city. Its 500 members were selected by lottery, like most other positions of power in ancient Athens. Practically, the only major elected position was that of the ten generals, and Cleon kept getting elected to it. With both competitors away now, the chorus proceeds with a parabasis, a set piece in most Aristophanic comedies, where the chorus addresses the audience directly. In this instance, they take the opportunity to explain why Aristophanes was reluctant to appear as a producer of comedy in previous years, and they lament the way the Athenian public has treated all the practitioners of the art of old comedy. They finish off by praising the exploits of the Athenian cavalry, both in remote and more recent history. Now, the sauce seller returns to announce to us and the chorus how he won the council over by his side. In line with the tone of the play so far, the proceedings in the council have none of the gravitas one would expect. The two contestants try to bribe the council with promises of extremely cheap white bait and extravagant sacrifices of oxen. Once again, the sausage seller is victorious just because he's prepared to outdo the Paphlagonian in lies, flattery and irresponsible promises. But ultimate sovereignty in Athens lay with the assembly of the people. So after the visit to the council, the old man Demos, the people, appears for the first time in the play. The two contestants will now try to win his favour directly. They follow three rounds of contest, in all of which the sausage seller is successful. In the first round, the sausage seller points out to Demos all the ways in which the Paphlagonian was detrimental to his interests and explains why he, on the other hand, will be to his benefit. In the second round, there's a presentation of oracles from both sides, where again the evidence provided by the sausage seller and the interpretation he gives to this evidence gains the upper hand. Needless to say, of course, that in these deliberations, again, the two contestants resort to the lowest form of flattery, trying to pander to the old man's every whim, and Demos seems more than happy to side with the greatest bidder, with no concern for any notion of prudence or public good. Nevertheless, while the two contestants leave to prepare the feast for the third and final contest, Demos confides the chorus, and he says, that he's very well aware of the game these politicians try to play, and here we may assume that he's talking about the whole political class of his day, and that he's way smarter than he looks, and that in the end he will always punish with a ballot box those who think they have fooled him. In the third and final contest, the Paphlagonian and the sausage seller each prepare an elaborate feast for Demos. The sausage seller is finally victorious when he points out that his own hamper is empty because he has given everything to the old man while the Paphlagonians is still full of goodies. The final blow comes when it is proved that the sausage seller answers exactly to the description in another set of oracles in the Paphlagonians' possession about the man who is bound to replace him. The sausage seller now reveals his name as Agoracritos, a compound word made up of agora, the market, and judgment. While the actors retire to the house, the chorus offers a second parabasis, a second direct address to the audience, 
this time offering its views on some famous Athenians of the day, including Hyperbolus, another demagogue. They also make some comments on Athenian naval policy. The actors re-emerge. In a direct parody of the myth of Medea, Agorakritos, the sausage seller, reveals that he has made Demos young again by boiling him. He has restored him to his state during the glorious days of the Battle of Marathon, an event which had already achieved mythic proportions in Athens. Bear in mind, of course, that by the 420s, any surviving veteran of the Battle of Marathon would be approaching 100. Agorakritos now points out to Demos his former susceptibility to flattery and empty promises, and Demos offers to amend his ways. Two beautiful girls, the peace treaties, are produced to accompany Demos, while the Paphlagonian is sent to the city gates to practice Agorakritos' old trade of selling sausages. And the play ends rather abruptly at this point. In a typical Aristophanes production, we would expect some more song and dance at this point, and perhaps a marriage between the rejuvenated Demos and one of the beautiful peace treaties. It is highly likely, therefore, that we're in fact missing the final portion of the play. It would be very hard to make sense of the play without some knowledge of the historical contest for the year in which it was produced. Conversely, though, reading this play gives us some great colour and is an invaluable complement to the more serious and straightforward historical narratives of the period, such as Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, by far the most complete and authoritative account of the war and one of the greatest books of Attic literature and probably of all time. Throughout the archaic and classical period, Greece never achieved its political unity. The Greek world, which was united by language, religion and its opposition to the non-Greek barbarians, was segmented in more than a thousand city-states of various sizes. The Peloponnesian War pitted Athens and its allies against Sparta and its allies and was the equivalent of a world war for the 5th century. It lasted a total of 27 years, from 431 to 404 BCE. Now, Lacedaemon and Sparta are another two geographical and political terms that are used pretty much interchangeably to refer to Athens' main enemy in the war. So, when the knights were produced in early 424, the war had been going on for six years. Pericles, who had been the leading political figure in Athens for the first for the two decades before the war, had died in 429 BC. A power vacuum had obviously ensued, and this play is a record of the struggle of two different types of politicians for dominance. Before long, a remarkable man named Alcibiades would appear in the political scene, who combined the social pedigree of the first group of politicians with an ability to charm the people unrivaled by even the most popular demagogue. But he was still in the future. Furthermore, Pericles' policy of avoiding direct confrontation with a superior Spartan army and moving the population from the Attica countryside inside the city walls had already taken its toll. Six years of living in cramped conditions had dented Athenian morale, as is obvious from reading this play. While a contagious disease, now known as the plague, had wiped out a significant portion of the population, 
including Pericles himself. In 425, however, Athenian forces had made an unexpected breakthrough in the war by capturing the island of Sphacteria in Pylos and taking 292 Lacedaemonian defenders as prisoners. Thucydides describes the shock in the, great world, in the Greek world a couple of generations after the heroic stand of Leonidas and his 300 of Thermopylae, that Spartans would let themselves be captured alive. The Athenians now not only had a strategically valuable stronghold close to Spartan territories, they could also use the hostages as a bargaining ploy to ensure that Sparta would abstain from its annual ravaging expeditions to Attica. Cleon, the politician lampooned as the Paphlagonian slave in the night, was widely credited as responsible for the pillar success. Both Thucydides and Aristophanes had a very low opinion of Cleon and the approach to politics he represented. Although the details are not clear, Cleon had already taken Aristophanes to court for one of his early plays. Now, it may very well be true, as suggested more than once here, that most of the work in Pylos was done by General Demosthenes, and that Cleon simply arrived just in time to claim the credit for the finished deed. But we can imagine that Cleon's reputation, when the Knights was produced, was at its peak. And it is a testament to the Athenian concept of parousia, free speech, that Aristophanes was allowed to produce such a thinly veiled attack on the most popular politician of the day. A politician, actually, who may have been sitting at an honorary front seat at the Theatre of Dionysus when the play was performed. With all this in mind, it becomes clear how the Knights is Aristophanes' commentary on political developments in Athens. And although the playwright's personal animosity to Cleon, in particular, is undisputed, no individual or groups escapes the censure and satire. The more conservative politicians like Nicias and Demosthenes are represented as cowardly and ineffective chatterboxes and complainers right on the verge of desertion at the beginning of the play. The rising political class of the demagogues is of course painted the worst possible colours and the driving idea between the whole plot is that in order to succeed in the contemporary political world it is required that one possesses the worst possible qualities imaginable. The knights, the so to speak upper class of ancient Athens, are also presented as being out of touch, focused entirely on the traditional aristocratic pleasures of the gymnasium and horse riding, rather than rising up to the challenges facing Athens in the midst of this unprecedented clash with Sparta. Finally, the people and its two representative bodies of the Assembly and the Council clearly have only their own personal interests in mind. They are ready to listen to and follow anyone making grand promises, with zero patience for a longer-term strategic consideration of the common good. As often happens in an Aristophanes play, the ending is rather unexpectedly and unjustifiably happy. Cleon is soundly bitten beaten and sent to sell sausages outside the city gates. The sausage seller, who has been matching and beating him at his own lowly game throughout the play, finally becomes the more respectable Agoracritus, dispensing wise advice, able to rejuvenate Demos magically and even procuring the two beautiful peace treaties for his benefit. The people, Demos, 
manages to regain some of the spirit of Marathon that made Athens great. He's willing to admit to past mistakes and bad habits and change his behavior completely. The chorus of knights appear more mature in the second parabasis where they make extended remarks on the Athenian navy. If the cavalry was aristocratic, the navy was the branch of the armed forces for the common people, those who couldn't even afford the armor of the hoplite, the infantry soldier. So Aristophanes, by making his knights talk about ships, achieves a sort of reconciliation of the two opposing poles of the social spectrum for the common good. Even the conservative politicians of a place in this closing utopia of the play, albeit a limited one, Demosthenes' last words are an offer to become a Gorakritis' assistant. In reality, over the next couple of years, Cleon would be dead, and the fantasy of a peace treaty with the Spartans would materialize, a treaty actually arranged by Nicias, one of the two original buffoon slaves. However, peace did not prove as long-lived as expected. The Athenians started stirring trouble almost immediately, both in mainland Greece and with an overambitious and ultimately disastrous attempt to conquer the island of Sicily. The war restarted and ended in 404, with Athens pretty much completely ruined and a Spartan-backed oligarchic regime replacing the democracy for about a year. The city's fortunes recovered considerably during the tumultuous 4th century, before Philip and Alexander of Macedon conquered the whole of Greece and united the whole country under their rule. However, Athenian democracy never again became as free, inclusive, complete and powerful as it had been in the second half of the 5th century. And one of the casualties of this political change was that unique creation of the Athenian democracy that was old comedy itself. Aristophanes' last extant work, Wealth, in fact signals the transition to what became known as middle comedy, a genre that is much less sui generis and more in line with what we would recognize today as a comedy play. It has to be admitted that Aristophanes can be a shock to the modern reader. Ancient Greece is associated in the minds of most modern readers and viewers with a certain kind of aesthetic. One can think, for example, of the Parthenon and the rest of the buildings on the Periclean Acropolis, the tragedies of Sophocles and Euripides, the history of Herodotus, Thucydides and Xenophon, the poetry of Pindar, Attic red figure vases, the philosophy of Plato, all pretty much contemporaneous to Aristophanes, give or take a couple of decades. Now, it is an interesting question on its own right whether our standard view of ancient Greece is accurate or whether, ever since the Renaissance, we have been guilty of romanticizing and idealizing the Greeks. Having said that, a first contact with Aristophanes can be a real shock. The dirty humor, the endless profanity, the irreverence, the almost childish preoccupation with sex, food and bodily functions, the grotesque plot lines, nothing in the rest of the output of classical Greece quite prepares you for an Aristophanic comedy. In the next section we will attempt to illuminate some of the characteristics and functions of Aristophanic comedy within classical Athens.
Before that, though, a few points have to be made clear. Aristophanes, like all great satirists, has a good sense of what can make people laugh and an ability to milk all the comic potential of a given situation. This does not mean, however, that his understanding is as simplistic or one-sided as his jokes may sometimes suggest. In fact, a close reading of his plays reveals his profound knowledge and understanding of all intellectual, artistic and political currents of his time. His parodies of other tragedians, philosophers and politicians could only be the work of a well-read, extremely intelligent and sensitive mind. Plato presents Aristophanes as one of the main speakers in his symposium, and although the setting of the dialogue may be fictitious, maybe that drinks party never actually happened, we can be pretty sure that the playwright did move within these elite intellectual circles of his time. We also have to remember that modern productions of Aristophanes' plays cannot run the risk of being completely incomprehensible and unfunny. Printed editions of the text can afford to use an endless array of footnotes to explain all the references and the jokes. We rely on ancient and Byzantine scholiasts, commentators, for an understanding of many of the allusions and references in Aristophanes and other classical texts. Sometimes, even these ancient commentators themselves are unclear about the sense of a passage. Stage productions, though, do not come with footnotes. Therefore, translations for the stage often replace 5th century references with modern jokes. These may ensure more laughs from an audience in the know, but arguably it moves us further away from the original and, of course, may make the play even less accessible to anyone who is familiar with the country and culture the translator is writing for. So, for example, a modern foreign visitor to a performance at the ancient theatre of Epidaurus may be just as baffled by jokes about Kyriakos Mitsotakis, the current Prime Minister of Greece, as he would be baffled by jokes in the original about Hyperbolus and his plans to launch an expedition against Carthage. Finally, we should remember that Aristophanes, for all the dirty language and adolescent sense of humour, wrote beautiful Greek. This may well be one of the reasons why his works remained popular among the Byzantines and survived. You can get a feel for the beauty of the language when looking at the original text, even if your command of classical Greek isn't that great. We should all try it. There is a saying that poetry is what gets lost in the translation, and this applies to Aristophanes. Divorced from his artistic genius, and despite the best efforts of the translators themselves, modern versions of his texts often read like collections of hackneyed jokes about belches, hangovers and excrement. This section, this final section, is not an attempt to explain why Aristophanes is interesting or why we should make the effort to become better acquainted with his work. Like all great art, an Aristophanic comedy is its own justification. But I would like to present some thoughts, some considerations, which will hopefully help to place him within the context of Greek art, literature and culture. The first point to consider is that the world of Aristophanes is the world of the imagination, the world of myth and fairy tale. 
Although they may deal with the political events of that year, his plays follow the logic of fairy tales and dreams. There are abundant examples of unrealistic events, fantasy fulfillments, breakdown of natural laws, a normal change of causation. So, although a knowledge of the historical and political context may be instrumental in understanding what is going on in many cases, we will achieve a much deeper enjoyment and understanding if we approach this place in a more poetic frame of mind. An obvious precedent for the Aristophanic hero would be Odysseus, the hero of the Odyssey. Yes, Odysseus is a king, brave, strong, beautiful as a god, a favourite and a companion of the gods. However, unlike other epic heroes, say Achilles and Hector, the protagonist in the Iliad, he does not rely on strength alone. He's always ready to think outside the box. He lies, he uses deceit, cunning, subterfuge. He tells the Cyclops Polyphemus that his name is Otis, nobody, before he blinds him. He returns to his homelands dressed as a beggar to escape the attention of the suitors who are vying for the hands of his wife, Penelope. So Aristophanes' audience, raised as they were on a diet of Homer from a very early age, would certainly appreciate this trait in the heroes of old comedy. Odysseus, however, as we said, was a king and a hero. The protagonists in Aristophanes are also reminiscent of a more obscure character in the Iliad, Thersites, the ugly commoner who dares to question and criticize his betters and is hardly beaten and ridiculed for it by none other than Odysseus, as a matter of fact. Yes, the average Athenian was part of the sovereign people. He did have the power to vote for wars, send politicians to exile, approve budgets, vet officials, and reach verdicts in court cases. But the fact remained that he lived in a world where he was surrounded by people who were richer, more powerful, more influential than him. Part of the pleasure of Attic comedy was seeing these authority figures lampooned and cut down to size. Aristocrats, politicians, generals, priests were all fair game for comic writers and it is hard to resist the thought that this was a vicarious way for the common person to take his revenge. Divine persons don't play a big part in the nights except for a couple of racy jokes on the goddess Athena but in some of the other Aristophanic comedies, even the gods receive the kind of treatment that would be shocking and unthinkable for anyone raised in the Christian tradition of faith and reverence. This same mechanism of letting off steam and escaping the strict prohibitions of everyday life may also explain the almost obsessive insistence on jokes of food, drink, sex and various bodily functions. Aristophanes' heroes stuff themselves with food, get hopelessly drunk, shit, fart, and never miss an opportunity for a sexual pun of the crudest sort. It is the kind of behaviour that would be unacceptable in polite society today, and very often it makes for very uncomfortable watching. The price all of us have to pay for civilization is that we have to curb our bodily needs and desires and regulate very strictly how, where, and in what conditions we exercise these human biological functions and drives. Therefore, there's something liberating about watching a play where people act as if they were never taught table manners, they were never potty trained, 
and where no taboos restrict the sexual urges. The uncomfortable laughs and nervous coughing in the audience may have more to do with the universal recognition of a yearning that has been repressed and pushed deep down into the unconscious than we may care to admit. These considerations may also be relevant in approaching the question of why tragedy seems to have a more universal appeal than comedy. It is impossible to watch Sophocles' Antigone, the story of a girl who chooses death rather than leave her brother unburied, or Aeschylus' libation bearers, the story of a son who kills his mother to avenge the murder of his father, and not be touched. The emotional impact of these plays on modern audiences is strong and very obvious. On the other hand, many people admit that they don't find Aristophanes funny at all. His plays seem to have aged much worse than the tragedies of his contemporaries. Part of the answer, of course, may lie in what we said about the overabundance of contemporary topical references that we are now unable to understand. But another factor at play may be that our pleasures and desires may be culture-specific to a larger extent than our fears and pains. It would be hard to imagine finding a group of humans where parents, for example, don't feel terribly upset about the death of their children. Yet, in our travels to foreign lands, we often come across habits, pleasures and tastes that we find puzzling, amusing, if not outright disgusting. Aristophanes gives us the opportunity to travel to the world of 5th century BCE Athens and what we see there is often beyond our comprehension and not to our liking. We should remember again that in ancient Greece the poets were not only entertainers and performers but also played the part of moral teachers. In a world with no organized priesthood, no centralized educational system and no sacred text Communities relied on works of literature to transmit knowledge about the world, nature, history and the gods, and to instruct on anything, from how to build a boat to how one ought to behave in extraordinary situations. Homer, of course, was the first among these poet educators. The Iliad and the Odyssey, his two epic poems, were the two texts that every child throughout Greece was almost certain to have heard from a very early age. But even later generations of poets retained this function of teacher of their community, even when working in a genre as seemingly ridiculous as old comedy. We should not forget that old comedy had a central part in one of the main religious festivals of the calendar year and was heavily regulated, sponsored and subsidized by the official state apparatus. And this will make Help, will help us make better sense of the end of the night and the conciliatory atmosphere that prevails. Aristophanes seemed to be saying to his compatriots, I have shown you the mess you have created for yourselves. Now, let me give you some advice on how to improve things. Admittedly, of course, the advice he does provide is not particularly enlightened or original, and in any case, it did not have much of an impact on the political situation in real life. Let's make here a short parenthesis on Plato. Students of Greek philosophy may have heard that Plato, when constructing his ideal republic, banished most poets from it, a point that often puzzles commentators 
and has led to accusations that Plato was against the arts and cultures. Obviously, this is a complex issue. For example, Plato had some very specific views on how certain kinds of musical education impact psychological development. But, let's remember this. Plato was aiming at a break with tradition and it was the poets who were the primary carriers and transmitters of this tradition and therefore the enemy that had to be overcome before a new system could be set in place. Finally, I would like to touch on a subject that has exercised scholars for centuries and is definitely beyond the scope of this article, the link between old comedy and ancient fertility rites. In fact, even Aristotle, writing his poetics less than a century after the Nights, seems able to offer speculations only and not definitive answers on the topic of the origins of comedy. We have already noted that the Nights, as most Aristophanic plays, share a dreamlike, fantastic quality with the stories of mythology. Another point we should mention is the preponderance of sexual language and phallic symbols the place full of sexual jokes, as we have already noted. And a giant phallus was carried in the theatre of Dionysus for the performances, where the costumes of the actors in a comedy, apart from the requisite mask, also included, in most, if not in all cases, a giant penis. Now, the male sexual organ, with its links to procreation, is a pretty universal symbol for fertility across cultures. But there's also something about the structure of this place that reminds us of ancient fertility myths and rituals, as analysed by anthropologists, starting with Sir James Fraser in his influential book A Golden Bough. We have a hero, the good guy, and an anti-hero who is the representative of evil, and the struggle between these two, the Argon, is at the core of the play, and in the night there are, as we saw, a total of four separate rounds of contest. The good guy is always victorious, and the bad guy is not only defeated, but also very graphically humiliated, punished and abused. Cleon in this play, who is obviously the bad guy, right, not only suffers several rounds of beatings from the knights and has every possible invective thrown at him, he ends up selling sausages at the city gates. The delight with which the anti-hero is punished in this and most other plays inevitably reminds us of the fate of the scapegoat in the anthropological literature or even in modern Christian peasant celebrations, say the burning of the carnival or of Judas on Holy Week. The successful hero is rejuvenated, revived, restored, risen from the dead, again in light with very ancient myths and the corresponding rituals for the fertility gods. Just think of Demos in this play, who's restored to the glory of his mythical youth as a fighter in Marathon after being bold. The humble sausage seller gets a completely new identity as the respectable Agoracritus, dispenser of wise advice and possessor of magical abilities. And finally, although as we saw this part is missing from the night, many Aristophanic plays end with a marriage ceremony totally unconnected to the main plot which usually has no love story or love interest to speak of. Again, this may have something to do with the Heros Gamos, the sacred marriage, the ritual union between the fertility king and his queen in primitive agricultural communities. All this, of course, is widely speculative, and any effort to flesh out the details and give a more precise account of the evolution from primitive fertility rites 
to 5th century Attic comedy is bound to hit challenging methodological difficulties. However, sketching the correspondences between old comedy and myth and ritual, even at this very basic and general level, deepens our appreciation and admiration of this very peculiar art form and its extremely ancient origins. Final fun fact number one. For years, archaeologists have been puzzled by the size and the position of some holes on the wall of the bastion of the Athena Nike temple on the Acropolis. Until someone noticed the passage in the night where the Paphlagonian was accused of hanging the shields from pillars with their handles on so as to be able to use them to subvert the democratic, democratic constitution should the need arise. It makes perfect sense that Cleon would choose to advertise his success at Pylos by hanging some of the shields of the captured prisoners at the Acropolis. And if these shields exceptionally did indeed have the wooden handles on, because handles were usually removed when hanging votive shields up, then this would explain the confusing peculiar and peculiar hole sizes that had been puzzling archaeologists. Final fun fact number two. The Knights won first place at the Lena competition of the year. Shortly afterwards, Cleon was re-elected as one of the ten generals. He kept getting re-elected for the next couple of years of his life. It seems the sovereign Athenian people had an ability both to laugh at its mistakes and to repeat these same mistakes year after year at the ballot box. This concludes our first episode of the G.I. Collier's podcast on Aristophanes' Night. I would like to thank you very much for joining me today and I hope to be able to speak to you soon. Thank you.